Hello, how do you measure biodiversity? And if you can, why does it matter? It's an issue investors have been grappling with, but when it comes to quantifying life on Earth, there are no easy answers. Fidelity has been involved in a pilot project to see if sound could help to solve biodiversity's data deficit. You can hear more about that project over on the Fidelity Answers channel. But as part of our investigation, I travelled to London's Natural History Museum to ask its director, Dr Doug Gurr, why biodiversity should be a focus for investors and what the financial community can do to help. Briefly, could you explain what biodiversity is, please, and why it matters? Well, it's a, it's a long word for a very simple concept. Biodiversity is simply the variety of all the life we have on Earth. So for any particular area, it is what is all the creatures that live, animals, plants, insects, funguses. That's biodiversity. Uh, why does it matter? Uh, I guess in two, two simple reasons. Um, one is there's a sort of, if you like, almost a, a moral imperative. Life matters. It's important. What right does any one species have to drive the extinction of another? So if you like, there's a, there's a fluffy argument, if you like, there. But there's also a serious argument, which is biodiversity is the driver of evolution. It's that variety that means you've got niches filled, that means when things change, you've got something ready to fill them. And so if you reduce biodiversity, you reduce resilience. And then small changes in climate can potentially have catastrophic impacts on systems that we all rely on. And we know, and the reason I'm here talking to you now is because there is a problem with biodiversity, that it is falling. How urgent is this problem? I think it's extremely urgent. I mean, we know, we know that life has been around for a long, long time, billions of years. Uh, we also know that every now and again, there's been a catastrophic mass extinction event when almost all that life has disappeared. It's only happened five times in the last 500 odd million years, so they're very rare. But every piece of data we look at tells us we're potentially heading for a sixth mass extinction and potentially not that far away. How far away? I mean, estimates vary hugely. It's been 66 million years since the last one when the asteroid took out the last of the non-avian dinosaurs. But your most extreme projection says, you know, we could be potentially, in an absolute worst case, maybe only decades away. If it's only decades away, um, that, that's cataclysmic. In the meantime, what is the economic impact of um, reductions in, in biodiversity? So we've got roughly, I mean, depending on how you do it, estimates is around as much as $44 trillion of economic activity reliant on biodiversity. Uh, and as you can imagine, there's everything from the food we eat, the systems we rely on. Uh, so if you start to perturb those systems, that's at risk. Uh, and from an investor's perspective, you know, if you begin to start to get areas where there are no-go areas or stranded asset risk, you can see some real challenge. So if I was sitting there as an investor, I'd be worrying a lot about biodiversity right now. Well, we'll come to that in a, in a little bit. You mentioned there the systems and, and, and services that different parts of uh, the environment provide to each other. Um, there's an obvious one there, which is pollination, um, and which relies, of course, on, on insects. What's going on there and, and how, how does that translate into an economic impact? Yeah, great question. So, so if we look at, um, and it's a good example whereby sometimes we're not aware of just what's happening. 
But if you look at pretty much any study of, and pollinators are a great example, whether that's bees that we love or mosquitoes that we maybe don't love so much or anything else like that, we've seen really significant declines over the past sort of decades in the volume of those pollinators. And if you combine that with an incredible specialization, so if you think now, for example, if you take, a, take an important crop like wheat, which has been very topical, um, pretty much all of the world's wheat is now concentrated in only about 16 varieties. And so back to that point about why does the diversity matter, if you reduce that diversity, you reduce the resilience. So suddenly now, if we have a small perturbation in perhaps climate or temperature or humidity, um, you could actually suddenly find that the pollinators that those particular varieties rely on start to decline, and then you get collapses in crop yields and you have huge economic impacts. And whereas if you have a more diverse environment and you're more thoughtful about creating the environment in which actually a variety of pollinators can exist, you're much more resilient about perturbations in the climate. Now, climate change, um, we all know about um, you know, limiting global warming to one and a half degrees. That's a, a very clear target, and it's something um, that's measured in centigrade, Celsius. I forget which one is the, the correct <laughs> one to use nowadays. Um, but that's very simple, even I can understand that. But tell me about biodiversity and the measurement of, of that, because just to sort of use my own very limited experience as an A-level biology student, I remember being sent off to a sand dune in North Wales with a square metre of, of wire that I plonked down and literally counted what was in that square metre, and that kept me busy for most of an <laughs> afternoon. So tell me about measuring biodiversity and the, the difficulties that that presents. Biodiversity has been hard to measure. It is more complex, if you like, than climate, where we've, or, well, actually, I think the climate scientists have done an extraordinary job of boiling it down to almost just one number. We talk about one and a half degrees, two and a half degrees. And the, the beauty of that is it makes it simple enough for policymakers, obviously, for corporations to act, because you know what the number is, you know roughly what the drivers are. Biodiversity has certainly suffered by being more complex. It's the total variety of life. As you mentioned, it's so many species. There are 10 million species. How do you measure it? Uh, that's a problem that um, actually scientists here at the museum and others have been working really hard at. Uh, and we've developed a series of indicators that really tell you two things. There's a question around extinction rates. So we have a, you know, you can look at a, a certain species, the pollinators, for example, and saying, are they going extinct? Should we worry about it? And that's great, but it's quite a trailing indicator. And, uh, cause, and once something's gone, it's gone. Uh, the bigger push right now is what we call intactness, which is the concept of how can you look at any part of the Earth's land surface uh, and how can you say what percentage of the pristine biodiversity still exists. And therefore, if you look at, for example, taking tropical rainforest and cutting it down to plant soya, to field cattle, we can actually now calculate what percentage of biodiversity reduces for that area across all taxonomic groups. And taxonomic groups means not just plants and animals, but plants, animals, insects, funguses. So those are the really simple metrics that we've been working on that are now available, that we're able to tell you at any scale for the whole world, for a country, for a region, for the operations of a corporation, for that land you're influencing, what percentage of the biodiversity still exists. And, and why is having a number so important? I think unless you can measure things, it's really hard to take action. And whether that's policymakers who, for example, said we're going to protect 30% of the Earth's surface by 2030, which is great, but then which 30%? How do you measure the most important 30% and how are we doing? So that's a simple example whereby if we can measure it effectively, we can track how we're doing, we can take action. And you talked about scientists here working on measurement, um, and we're involved in a project with some other scientists in a different way of measuring. Um, how much work is there to do still in 
measuring the millions and millions of different species um, that there are in any given environment. I think we're now pretty close to having metrics that actually work, um, which wouldn't have been the case maybe 10 years ago. And that's through a combination of being able to take, if you like, broad level satellite imagery and look at a total ecosystem and say how intact it is, supplemented by really interesting on the ground stuff that's using things like you know, acoustic monitoring of particular species or environmental DNA, where we can actually go in at a really granulator level, say, let's sequence everything that's living there and see where we are. So I think actually probably now we're pretty close. In fact, I'd say we're actually now at a point where we've got good enough metrics and we can start to act. Well, that's encouraging. Other aspects of um, sustainability, people have been grappling with how do you define the things that you're trying to measure? They're coming up with um, a taxonomy that um, is, is agreed by everybody so that you're all using the same language. Um, are we at that stage with measuring biodiversity? Is there a global agreement on how to, um, how to measure this? I think we're heading pretty quickly in that direction. So. Um I'd say there's a pretty good global agreement. You've got these two basic concepts of worry about extinction rates so you can see what's disappearing and worry about this concept of the intactness of an ecosystem. Still lots of competing metrics as there always are about which ones and I think probably over the next year or two. One of the important things you'll see is beginning to coalesce around which are the, not necessarily one, but which are the two or three really credible metrics that everybody can get behind. So we've got a common language. We have, if you like, the equivalent of talking about one and a half or two and a half degrees. We can talk about, well, what percentage are we trying to achieve in terms of intactness, particularly for those areas of the world that we really care most about, those really rich biodiverse areas. And once you've got that, do you think that awareness of the issue might follow in the same way that most people will have heard about climate change and um, trying to limit uh, temperature increases. Do you think that there will be the uh, right level of awareness on biodiversity? I think it's definitely rising. I mean, I think in some ways we think of, of the issues around biodiversity as perhaps where we were with climate, I don't know, 10 years or 20 years ago, in which it was a sort of funny thing out there that a few scientists were worrying about, and now it's absolutely mainstream. I think you'll begin to see this much more for biodiversity. So, for example, it's, it's, if you, it's, really, it's a really big deal that even at the, the climate cops, there is a focused area around nature, partly as a solution. We know that nature is one of the ways in which you can actually solve problems of carbon dioxide sequestration. But equally, we understand that one of the reasons we should worry about climate, in fact, I would argue the reason we should worry about climate is because it's one of those drivers of biodiversity loss. And in a sense, it's biodiversity loss that could be potentially catastrophic. And in some ways, when you think about the climate debate, it's, it's going to be a bit warmer. We might lose a few low-lying islands. That's bad, but it's not existential. Whereas biodiversity collapse can be existential. They, they seem like two completely different concepts, um, and yet uh, you're, you're linking them. Why? Well, they're, they're, they're different but correlated in the following sense. Think about, you know, what is climate about? It's about atmospheric CO2. And one of the ways, in fact, you won't solve climate unless you use nature-based solutions, because that's one of our most important ways of taking carbon dioxide outside the environment. So if you like, biodiversity is partly a solution to climate. Equally, we worry about climate because one of the big impacts of climate is that it affects biodiversity. It's not the only threat, but it is the threat to biodiversity. And so you've got these sort of two interlinked things here that, you know, nature, biodiversity helps solve climate. Climate is one of the threats to biodiversity. You mentioned investors earlier on. You know, one of the reasons we're here is to find out what can investors do to help. So I think the financial community investors have a huge part to play. You know, if you think about what's genuinely going to move the needle globally, 
it typically it's either a regulatory change, and we're seeing some of that through the policymaking framework, the UN, the 30 by 30, or it's how capital gets deployed globally. And that's where the investors really come in. And in a sense, if the investment community, if we can take that sort of, if you like, that sort of assumption that nature is infinite, we can't possibly affect it. And if we can understand that it's not infinite, it's quite limited. And we can start to factor that into our investment decisions. Then you could end up in a situation where you might just nudge where the capital flows. And if at the margins, you can generate the same return, but do it in a way that doesn't overconsume the Earth's natural resources, that can only be positive for biodiversity. And unless we do that, I don't think we'll solve the crisis. That's stopping overconsumption. What is the, the sort of proactive uh, flip side to that? Where can investors actually make a difference? So I think there are great examples where we can actually go and look at some of those most precious ecosystems and just say, how can we restore them? And in fact, if we can go into those, and, the, and in some ways this is a solvable problem because we don't have to fix it everywhere. You know, if you like, in the sense with, with climate, you, it doesn't really matter where you solve it. With biodiversity, it really matters because there are some parts of the world that are incredibly rich, incredibly ancient ecosystems, incredibly diverse. The others, much less so. So if we can get in and concentrate on restoring those, that's where we'll actually make a big difference. And uh, for somebody listening to this, what would be your call to action uh, or call to arms even? I think the first thing I'd really ask is just start to think about biodiversity, perhaps in the same way you think about climate. And if you want a, a simple statistic to give you a feel of the scale of it, if you, if you, I always come back to chickens. Um, chickens now outnumber birds by all other birds by more than two to one. 71% of all birds on the planet are chickens. That just gives you a feel of the scale of human activity on biodiversity. So maybe just think about chickens next time you're trying to think about your investments. You are a vocal advocate um, for this and you've got, you've got a platform here at the Natural History Museum. Um, what does it mean to you personally? I mean, for me, this is, this is um, it's a huge responsibility. I mean, the, the museum declared a planetary emergency two years, just over nearly three years ago because we are facing a planetary emergency. I can't think of anything more important than to try and get people engaged around this issue. And there's so much doom and gloom, and an emergency is not an uplifting message. Where is the hope for you in, in the activity that's going on? Well, you know, that's a brilliant question, because we know that we're not going to, if you just present people just with doom and gloom, they'll throw up their hands and give up. Uh, and in a sense, if you go back to all the work that Pathogas Gupta and others did a couple of years ago, the exam question was, Almost is it too late? Or is there still a path in which we can still have a good level of global economic growth, but without overconsuming the Earth's natural resources? And the good news, and it's genuinely good news, that the answer is yes. There is still a path by which we can grow the economy, let people have their reasonable aspirations for better life, but do it without overconsuming the Earth's natural resources. It's quite a narrow path, and it is not the path we're currently on, but with the help of everybody in this call and others, I think we can nudge the world to that path. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied upon by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without the prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.